Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me for a off-season podcast where we're going to do some uh, summer leftovers. It's uh, my good buddy Rachel Dory. Rachel, what's going on? Not much. I'm uh, summertime, and there's a lot of yelling on Twitter. But I'm excited we're doing a podcast instead of yelling at each other on Twitter. Well, we can yell at each other on the podcast if you want. But I feel like you know we've we've done three or four shows so far together, and I feel like it's been pretty cordial. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of yelling. But we'll see. We'll see how the show goes. I don't want to rule it out. Ah, uh, fair enough. I mean, I'm definitely. I mean, I think my podcast co-host uh, he does all the yelling for the two of us. <laughs> So today we're going to, I mentioned we're going to do kind of like some summer leftovers. There's a a number of teams that I want to talk about that have been keeping pretty busy. And I wanted to go away from like sort of the um, obvious contenders and the obvious mainstream teams that have been capturing a lot of the attention so far this offseason. And so I wanted to talk about teams like the Sabres and the Canucks and the Oilers. And that's usually uh, a statement that's filled with, uh, with dread and either sarcasm or irony but i actually do especially in the sabers case really want to get into it because they've been super busy and they've actually done a lot of stuff that i'm intrigued by at least which uh you know based on their track record a 10 game win streak aside for the past like seemingly half decade or whatever uh we haven't been able to say too often so um are you excited to uh to, to deep dive the sabers a little bit with me well, yeah, I mean, I'm like the president of the Marcus Johansson fan club. So anytime you can give me an excuse to talk about him, um, I'm all over it. Um, but I would agree with you. I, I like some of the moves that they, uh, they've they done this summer. And so definitely, let's dive right in. Okay, well, so here's the thing. Um, we hear time and time again, kind of like a common trope uh, in hockey circles. We hear it parroted by GMs all the time is like, you know, you have to draft defensemen because... 
they're really hard to, to come by. You, you either probably have to pay a premium in a trade or if they hit the open market, you're going to have to give out a ridiculous contract. And so we sometimes see teams reach for defensemen or really value them highly in the draft process. And there's certainly some of that. I mean, you see sometimes in some of these uh, trades and signings that there is a bit of a premium place on them just because I feel like there is like a shortage of really good above average defensemen to go around for each team. So when a guy becomes available, teams generally jump at it. But the Sabres have kind of gone... Um, against that and done a lot of their damage through the trade market and kind of taken advantage of um, a couple guys that became available. And so all of a sudden in the past, whatever handful of months dating back to the traded line, you know, they traded for Brandon Montour, they trade a second and a fifth, both future picks for Colin Miller a couple weeks ago. And then most recently they trade for uh, Henry Yokiharyu. So, you know, in those three guys, and then you obviously pair them with winning the lottery and, and, and hitting a home run with Rosmus Dalian first overall and, yeah. and signing, which obviously certainly helps. And then uh, signing Lawrence Pilot, who I like quite a bit as an, on a, kind of an undrafted free agent from Sweden. Um, all of a sudden in those five guys, you have five defensemen that really blend perfectly into today's game in terms of their skating, their ability to move the puck up the ice, to play with tempo, to do a lot of the stuff that people like you and I generally prioritize in, in skill sets from defensemen. And so I, I'm really fascinated to see both how this plays out and what their next steps are, because in a really short period of time, they've done one of the more difficult tasks in today's game. And that's just like assemble this young, uh, prolific blue line, seemingly. Yeah, well, I think um, obviously the most prolific is the young man that they drafted last year and Darlene. And I, mean, I think he's been sort of talked about ad nauseum, but just he's absolutely terrific. But the move with Yoki Haru really shocked me because, I mean, you young right-handed defenseman, um, those aren't exactly around all that often. Um, and I feel like this was one of those kind of under-the-radar things because I think had some other teams known that maybe Chicago was willing to move Yoki Hairu, like they probably would have been interested in giving up something probably better than Alex Nylander. Hmm. Um, and so the fact that Jason Barrel kind of been able to find these sort of Colin Miller, Brandon Montour, Yoki Hairu kind of trades I mean, let's face it, he gave up way less in every single one of those trades than anyone thought he should have. Right. And, and that's just incredible. To do that once is great. To yep. do that three times in six months is crazy. Well, and he, he took advantage of, uh, you know, obviously kind of timing is everything and being opportunistic and sort of... Um, you know, with with the Colin Miller example, um, you know Vegas had a cap crunch and they had to get rid of him, and uh, he stepped in. And obviously, that at, at that rate for what they had to give up, it's a no brainer. With Yogi Haru, uh, I definitely kind of came out of nowhere, um, especially since he had looked so so good for, especially for his age and kind of the position he was thrust into in his brief cameo with the Blackhawks last year, and then obviously winning gold at World Juniors with uh, with Team Finland, and then what he did in the AHL afterwards, and so he was kind of viewed as this like uh, core member of this blue line that the Blackhawks were going to eventually turn over from the Keiths and the Seabrooks and this next wave for them, and what's really interesting to me is, is that, you know, with the Blackhawks at the draft, we were like, okay, at third overall, are they going 
going to take Bo and Byram? Is it kind of are they going to go take a forward instead because they've invested so much draft capital in rebuilding their blue line in the past couple of years? And then they go away from Byram, they take uh, Kirby Doc, and then they trade Yogi Haru, and all of a sudden it seems like we're kind of back to square one where you know you still have Adam Boquist there, and, and you have Ian Mitchell and Nicholas Bodan, and a couple of young players that are worth watching moving forward. But for the most part, it's like. The, the reasoning seemed to be like, from a Blackhawks perspective, oh, we have a bunch of NHL-ready players already filling those positions, and we won't, don't have room for Yoki Haru, and that was just such a weird uh, rationale for me, because just from a sort of youth and a puck-moving perspective, they don't really have too many guys of his skill set. We don't want to prop this guy up because he ha- has played in the NHL for so little so far. I'm not necessarily saying that he's you know a can't-miss stud that's going to be dominating in the NHL and winning Norris trophies, but he seems like a reasonable bet to at least be a useful blue liner, and that's something the Blackhawks could desperately use. He seems like a reasonable bet to be a top four defenseman. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying he's a top pairing guy. Like, I'm certainly, please don't take this as me saying, oh, he's basically the second coming of Rasmus Dahlin. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but you can't look at the Chicago depth chart and tell me that he's not better than at least a few of the defensemen on their current roster. Um, particularly some that are being paid a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think with Buffalo the way that they've rebuilt that core. Um, you've got Colin Miller and Montour, which will allow guys like uh, Darlene and Yoki Haru to really come into their own. I mean, Darlene is, he's already a terrific defenseman, but the fact that they have more to support him so he's not just kind of on an island. I mean, I think I'm being kind of kind when I say that Rasmus Ristolainen is not a top four defenseman. Um... I mean, what do, you, what do you mean? Look at the amount of minutes he played. I feel, I feel like, you know, in today's game, uh, people cite, it's like, oh, this guy played top four minutes, therefore he must be a top four defenseman. I see that all the time on Twitter. Oh, yes, I've seen a lot of things on Twitter. I'm like, hmm, I disagree with you, sir. Um, and most of the time it is sir, not ma'am. Yeah. Um, but I think that with you can kind of, you should be pushing Ristolainen down their lineup. There is no excuse for him to be playing um ahead of some of the players that we've talked about. Um, I think Yoki Haru this this year would probably benefit from playing in the in the 5-6 role um, just to like let him develop, let him move up the lineup when necessary. But when you've got guys like, like Montour and Darlene and Colin Miller, there's no need um, to rush. And they do have Bogosian as well and Marco Scandella for this year. I, mean, I think they're UFAs next year. Um, and I would assume that at least one of them, if not both, will be gone. But that's something you can leverage, right? You don't have to be playing these guys 20 to 25 minutes a night. It's just not necessary. Um, and so I think they've, they've really done a really good job um, turning their decor around. And they've done it without really giving up a whole lot. And that's really difficult to do. Yeah. No, it's it's certainly impressive. And you're right with Yuki Haru. I mean he definitely passed the eye test in his time in Chicago. The numbers, underlying numbers, might not necessarily be great, but it's like when your guy's first sort of taste of the NHL is just playing like top pairing minutes with Duncan Keith and getting hammered against other teams' best players, like I'm willing, especially as a teenager, to give him a free pass on that. So I'm not worried about that at all. And, you know, you mentioned Ristolainen, and I think that's kind of the interesting trickle-down effect here or next domino to fall for, for Botterill and the Sabres in that we'll still see sort of how they feel about him and whether they value him more than we do. But I did think it was interesting. Now, obviously it's going to be a different coaching staff this coming season with Ralph Kruger. So 
it, it remains to be determined. But it was interesting to me that as the year went on last year, there was clearly like a transition in place where Ristolainen's minutes were dropping pretty steadily month to month and Dalin's minutes were escalating and he was taking some of those power play minutes from him and the top usage. And so mm-hmm. now that they have all these guys, all of a sudden you can look at it and be like, okay, well, we can actually now deal Ristolainen from a position of strength and still cash in uh, in his perceived value I'm sure there's a certain, at least one team out there that's willing to view him as that top pair, top pair, or, or top four guy at least. And I could see Edmonton. Well, well, yes, and and I, I have a note on that. I want to get into that because that does seem like a very interesting trade partner. But you know, when I I did a like an Atlantic Division preview before the free agency period for ESPN, and I was writing about the Sabers, and I wrote basically about wrist line, and it's like. I mean, on paper, you're talking about a 25-year-old right shot DN who signed at a very reasonable price for three years. That seems to make him a tremendously valuable asset if he were actually good at hockey. But in this case, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's ultimately irrelevant whether he is or he isn't good at hockey because, as you mentioned, the Oilers or any other team out there, we just know from sort of following the NHL, there's going to be at least one team that's going to look at that sort of resume of his or that biography and go like, you know what, maybe we can bring him in here and we can channel those skills and channel that frame of his and, and some of the, you know, his ability to skate to that size and we're going to turn him into a better player than he's looked so far and look at his, like, minutes and his usage and his point totals on the Sabres even though they were, like, the most empty calorie stats possible and go, like, there's something there and so I guarantee you they could get a valuable asset in return for him and it's much more easier to sort of reconcile that now that you have all these other defensemen ahead of him on the depth chart so that it seems like it's kind of like a win-win for Botterill where he can spin that positively even if there are some Sabres fans out there that are still holding out hope that Ristolainen's going to be this amazing defenseman. Well, yeah, and the one thing that um, the people in front offices like to consider is the fact that he's six foot four and shoots right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he is six foot four and not six foot one makes him tremendously more valuable in their eyes. Um, and the perception that he's difficult to play with or di- difficult to play against, which I mean. I've heard that quantified a number of different ways, and I still can't wrap my head around it. Um, I think what makes him valuable uh, to people who think certain ways, and because, like you said, Buffalo has this position of strength now where he's, at best, their fourth defenseman, and likely less than that, um, they can afford to either keep him or to move him. And so that is a position of strength, which is kind of interesting because maybe they do get a, an asset back for him um, that potentially another team sees tremendous value in him and and they end up getting more than perhaps we think he should be traded for. Well, the added benefit uh, of a lot of the guys that we mentioned, like the Montours and the Millers and the Yogi Haru's, is, is I think their ability to create offensively with their puck skills and their skating because when you still look project ahead and you look at the Sabres depth chart as much as you know we're talking glowingly about this blue line and how they've done a magnificent job of fixing it in a short period of time up front there's still a lot of black holes and there's still a lot of like where's the offense going to come from beyond just the top one-two punch of Skinner and Eichel and it was really interesting last year and you know it's not necessarily groundbreaking material to be like oh the team 
team was better with their best players on the ice and then when you took those two guys off they were much worse but just like the disparity for the Sabres between how good they were when they had Eichel and Skinner out there where they were a plus in goals and shot share and pretty much every metric at 5-on-5 and then when you took them off they were basically the worst team in the league and so for them just kind of being able to survive with their second and third lines is going to be huge and Marcus Johansson certainly goes a long way especially in the neutral zone and kind of helping territorially with that I'd still if they could turn around and now sort of parlay Ristolainen into a forward that could step in especially down the middle and give them a one-two punch behind Eichel all of a sudden I would like this team a lot more and I think that's what they should be targeting in a trade and and that's why when you bring up the Oilers I'm like man like a wrist in for a Ryan Nugent Hopkins trade just seems way too obvious oh it just seems it's far too obvious I think that Nugent Hopkins is probably better than a third line center um and he would play second line behind Eichel and I think that Edmonton um, is exactly the type of team that would value Ristolainen Um, Edmonton was using him as like a first line winger last year which was like so random they were doing a lot of things last year that I was like hmm okay Um, first of all I would be telling Leon Dreisaitl um, I know you like playing with McDavid you can play with him on the power play but you're playing center I'm not paying you eight and a half million dollars to do uh, to just ride shotgun that's not a thing um, I'm not having $20 million on my top line. Like, it's just not happening. Um, and if he pouts, he pouts. Too bad. Um, but with Ryan Nugent Hopkins for Ristolainen, like, I think Ryan Nugent Hopkins on the second line with potentially somebody like Marcus Johansson and maybe a Connor Sheary um, would be very good. And then that allows Casey Middlestat to potentially, you can move him to the wing or you can have him as your third line center that way he gets perhaps an easier matchup as he develops because he's still got a long way to go I mean he's terrifically skilled but he's not quite where he needs to be in terms of the top six potential quite yet and he's young right I think that he looks like he's 11 years old so he literally looks like he's 11 yeah like you could walk into a high school and be like yeah that kid fits in yeah, unfortunately, he played like he was an 11-year-old last year, which uh, <laughs> he's not ideal. a big fan of contact. No, which is which is fine, uh, you know, and he does certainly have the uh, you know the puck skills, but yeah, there's there's still a lot of room for growth there, and, and you're right. I think just sort of, especially you know, we, we did this dance last summer, I think because. I believe towards the end of the year before he came on in final 10 games or whatever, he put up a bunch of points and then people were like, Oh, just penciling him in. He's going to take another big step in his development. He's going to be our number two center behind Eichel and we're set. And it's like, that's sometimes that's not often how uh, development works with young players. And he certainly showed that there's a lot of room for growth there. And I think the more interesting name, honestly, down the middle for them is, is Dylan cousins who fell to them in, in this year's entry draft, but he's obviously still being drafted at a major junior, still at least one or two years away from really being anything for them at, at the, at the pro level. So they kind of need to, they need to fill that gap. And as much as I love, uh, like when you have a guy like Marcus Johansson, he sort of basically is, a center for you even if he's not playing down the down the middle just because he controls the puck so well and possession does run through him so i'm not necessarily worried about it from that perspective but it's just they they do need one one or two more uh pieces up front for you to really feel more confident about this team actually sustaining any sort of success moving forward 
I would, yeah, I would agree. I think that um, Marcus Johansson sort of plays like a center in terms of his puck possession. I think now that the Sabres have Dylan Cousins sort of in their system, he is their center, and so their top two centers sort of going forward will be Eichel and Cousins. I think you might want to see what you have with Middlestad on the wing because he's one of those terrifically skilled players, and he's a water bug, so he's, he's very difficult to hit. You know he's going to be a magician on the power play. And if you want him playing in your top six, I mean, he's not going to be a better center than Cousins, and he's he will not be better than Eichel in any facet. Um, so maybe trying him on the wing is, is not a bad idea, right? See what you have. Of course. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not saying to just give up on him. Right? But I, I think you need something you, like you, teams need contingency plans in cases like this, right? Like it's it's always this kind of like uh, hopeless optimism where it's like, oh, our young players are all going to get uh, a certain percentage better year over year. And yeah, we're just going to pencil happen. that in. It's like, uh, well, if you don't have a fallback plan, it seems like you're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment. And we see that time and time again with these rebuilding teams. So, um, but, you know, now they have the, they have many more assets now, I guess, in the moral of this than they had at this time last year and so that's a step in the right direction and yeah I, I think this is probably the most like optimistic uh 15 minutes on a non-sabers fan podcast that anyone has ever talked about uh this team so uh kudos to us you know i want to talk about blackhawks a little bit here as we sort of pivot from that yoki haru trade and they've also been uh they've arguably been the busiest team this summer i mean you know, they're clearly, uh, Stan Bowman is sort of telegraphing the fact that T- Jonathan Taves had a bit of a, you know, a throwback, uh, more productive season last year. Patrick Kane was obviously exceptional for them offensively. And so all of a sudden, with those two guys still playing at a high level, they pretty clearly want to, uh, squeeze as, as much, as much juice out of that orange as they can and kind of go for another run with those guys. And so a lot of these moves they made this summer are very, um, sort of win unanimously win now moves for a team that was as bad as they were last year in the past couple years and i don't know like i i think they got better i guess the question is sort of how much and how much some of these players they acquired are actually um going to be able to do for a lot of their defensive deficiencies last year which was um you know they were abhorrently bad there's no other way to put it i think they were 30 (laughs) in goals against and shots against basically only the ottawa senators were worse than them in those categories and they were actively not trying to win games or carrying or feeling fielding nhl lineups so for the blackhawks that's clearly alarming and i think you know from their perspective they're probably looking at it and going like okay well you know we get robin leonard on this amazing one-year deal uh if Corey crawford is gonna still battle a lot of these injuries and you know he's played but like 27 and 39 games or something in the past two seasons i don't think we can expect at this point that he's gonna give you 55 to 60 games now they are going at it at least with like okay, we have a backup option there that can be a starter for us, and we're not going to rely on 30-plus games of Cam Ward at this point of his career. And maybe they're, they're, they're thinking that, you know, Jeremy Collin was kind of put in a tough position last year where they hired him in season. He's replacing Clay Glenville. Uh, he hasn't had a full off season or a full preseason in training camp to really instill any of his systems or do anything. He's kind of trying to adjust on the fly with this kind of veteran team. And so I think if you, you look at it from that perspective, I guess there's reason for optimism that this won't be like literally the worst team in the league defensively. But I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out and just how much better they actually are heading into next season. Yeah, like I, I like the acquisition of Calvin DeHaan. Um, I think that is an improvement. 
Um, I think Oli Mata, even though people don't think all that highly of him, is, again, another improvement over um, what they had. And I like Eric Gustafson. Like, I think he should be getting top four minutes routinely. Um, I think he can be effective in that role. Um, I'm not the biggest Brent Seabrook fan out there. I don't think he can play in today's game. When the Blackhawks were very good, that pairing of him and Keith, it was terrific for them. It held the fort. But the way that Seabrook plays is just not conducive to success in today's game. So I think that's very generous evaluation. (laughs) I'm trying. Okay. Um, I think even though he makes six, eight, seven, five or something like that, he makes close to seven million. Um, He still has to play on your bottom pairing. And if you want to play him on the penalty kill, okay, so be it. But I think that you need to be able to sort of use guys like Oli Matting, Dahan, and you can still use Duncan Keith. And um, but you really should be looking at giving Eric Gustafson a bigger role in terms of what he can do because I really liked what I've seen from him. Um, I know some other people have sort of thought the same way. Um, and then you brought up that they have some defensive prospects, and I be- Ian Mitchell is going back to Denver, um, but I think he'll end up being someone for the future but for this season specifically oh it's their top four is basically keith dahan mata and what should be eric gustafson um well i mean i guess the positive thing is they basically doubled their uh total of nhl defensemen from last year to this year with acquiring those guys and and so that's obviously a step in the right direction you know it's interesting because i think when you watch a guy like Oli mata um it's it's weird because he's young and i feel like when he came into the league people were expecting him to be kind of this like modern day defenseman just like the guys we were talking about that the sabers acquired that would be able to move around and do a lot of stuff with the puck and whether it's because of the injuries he's had or or maybe he just never developed in that type of player he it's it's weird to watch him play and and he gets burnt a lot out wide and there isn't a very good skater at all but i did notice that he has very good um in zone numbers from all the player tracking data that i've seen defensively in terms of his activity and kind of breaking stuff up and i think that's what what makes it an interesting fit with him and dahan who's a similar player in that this team was such a bad defensive team in their own zone last year it was like very reminiscent of like the patrick wall abs and the doug wade islanders where it's one thing those are not good (laughs) it's one thing to have bad defensemen but it's another thing to be as bad as those teams were defensively and it's because they just there was like no plan and it was just a lot of guys kind of just like running around and chasing the puck and so at least they acquired a couple of guys who know what they're doing in their own zone it and, literally looked like a fire drill oh, at a lot of points last year i mean there was like you could have put a peewee game on and i would have been like yeah that's about right in terms of like obviously they're better quality hockey players but the level of running around and puck watching and losing your man, it was very reminiscent of sort of minor hockey. And I was like, oh my goodness, the, as a coaching staff, this must drive you nuts. Well, there was that one game against the centers actually where it was like seven six or something and they, and they played a couple yes. of those games they played a, a couple against the leafs i believe and there, there was probably way too many of them for any uh nhl coach to keep their sanity just watching that but it, you know it made for fun viewing and i enjoyed watching them but obviously from an actual sort of uh win loss perspective and and uh ability to compete in today's game there was a lot left to be desired there and so for them um 
they haven't necessarily like completely uh, mortgaged their future to do this. Like a lot of these trades they made were sort of minimal risks, and they were just basically taking on salaries. Uh, the the Nylander trade for Yoki Haru is a fascinating one for me because it definitely feels like it's like after how big of a home run the Dylan Strom trade was for them, it seems very reminiscent of that where Stan Bowman's like, oh, well, that worked for us, so I'm going to take this another forward who was sort of underwhelming and underproducing in his uh, first stop with the team that drafted him and kind of bank on all that potential and draft hype that he had and hope he figures it out for us. I'm just not sure in this case. I know we were sort of saying similar things about Strom and like, oh, will his skating ever translate? Will he ever be able to produce offensively the way he did if it doesn't? And he obviously uh, turned his game up a notch in better circumstances playing for the Blackhawks last year. But with Nylander, it's, I I don't know. I, I haven't seen anything to this point to suggest that they're going to hit that untapped potential with him. It seems like they're kind of uh, banking on something that's not too likely to, to turn out in their favor with this one. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when it was Alex's draft year and people were saying, oh, he's better than William. And to me, if you watched carefully, there were certain red flags. Like his body language uh, was a big concern for me in his draft year. Um, his just will to not go to the middle of the ice was another one. It was always to the outside. It was always around the net. Well, the ice is a lot smaller on 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 this side and when he was playing in Mississauga he was still a perimeter player and that was a really really big concern um and at least with with Strom you can say what you want about his skating but he has other qualities like he reads the game very well um he's got a great release and ability to find players he had chemistry with the Brinkett and Erie um but he was able to sort of find his way and with Strom I don't think his work ethic and will to actually want to do the things was ever in question whereas to with Nylander from since I'm getting uh, that is very much in question and when someone's questioning your will to want to play hockey at a higher level uh, that's kind of concerning for me and I don't want to say that oh it's true and this that and the other but to me questioning someone's skating is significantly different than questioning someone's work ethic it is. I'm also questioning his productivity because uh, it's not very good. No, and I think that's what it boils down. And I to don't think he's going to get like. Here's a difference with with a player like that. They need to be put in positions where they are playing with skill, right? He's not going to play on the top line with Patrick Kane. So he's not going to be playing with that skill. He's probably not even going to be playing with Stroman to Brinkett on the second line, right? He's probably going to find himself on the third line if he makes the team at all. And you're just, you're not, you can't be relying on only your skill when you're playing in the bottom half of the lineup. That's just not how it works. You have to be able to transfer skills to be an effective player in the bottom six. And from what I see, he doesn't have those right now. I'm not saying he can't acquire them because he certainly has the talent. But if he wants to play in the top six, he's got a long way to go. And if he wants to play in the bottom six, he's got to acquire some new skills in terms of what he can bring to a team. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that. I think it's a, uh, it's obviously a to be determined, but uh, I'm not overly optimistic about it. Um, let's okay. Let's, let's talk about the Canucks enough about the Blackhawks. Um, so 
this is Jim Benning's sixth offseason with the team. Seems like time's really, really flying by. Um, they missed the playoffs four straight years. This summer, they go into it and they trade a first-round pick uh, for JT Miller. Can I ask you a question yeah. about the Canucks? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so you could make the argument that about the only positive thing that they've done in Jim Benning's tenure is draft because they've drafted uh, – Tremendously well, I would argue. Well, uh, let's let's pump the brakes on tremendously well. Elias uh, Patterson was a home first run. round pick. Elias Patterson <laughs> was certainly pick. a home run. Yeah, I would say with their first round picks, they've nailed it. Quinn Hughes, great pick. Elias, great pick. Obviously, to be determined with their later round picks. But we've sat here and we've said, in terms of the way the salary cap is right now, you want to be good, you have to hit home runs with your first round picks. And you could definitely say in the last two seasons that they've done that, right? I would. I'm a fan of Pod Colson. So let's. They've drafted well, right? Why, if I'm their like head of scouting or whatever, the director of scouting, you just traded my first round pick for JT Miller when that's about the only positive thing that we've done as an organization in the past three or four seasons. Like I'd be tearing my hair out, right? If that's like one thing that's going really well. And your trading record is um, not great, to say the least. I'd probably be leaving my first round picks alone, wouldn't you? Yeah, but if they don't, <laughs> if they don't make the playoffs over the next two years, Jim Benning's not going to be running this team, and so he doesn't care. Obviously, if they don't have their twenty twenty one first overall pick, first round pick, which could be the first overall pick if they don't make the playoffs, and is a lottery selection. So, you know, from his perspective, is like what do I have to lose? I'm just going to go for it. And so that, that's like kind of, that's been the, the theme of their moves. I, they go out, spend a ton of money on Tyler Myers. Uh, they go out and they sign Michael Fertlin to a very reasonable deal. Uh, but <laughs> still, you know, t- t- inheriting some risk there with his concussion history and the fact that they gave him that fourth year, which reportedly no other team in the league was willing to offer. And I think for good reason. And so that's, that's the issue for me here where it's like, in a vacuum, a lot of Jim Benning's tenure can be sort of described as like, oh, like, you know, the talent evaluation is reasonable. Like, they got better in this this summer. But you can't view this stuff in a vacuum because it's salary cap world. You have a finite amount of resources. And so I guess the question for me, because the tenor here in Vancouver from Canucks fans is that this team is finally on the right track. They're trending towards being a playoff team. It's like, there's no doubt that they improved this summer by adding all those guys that we just listed but at what cost and how much would we reasonably expect them to improve from where they've been the past couple years well let's start by saying um i don't think it's a model of success to be paying um your fourth line like a combined eight and a half million dollars um that's probably not great um as far as i like the edler contract i like its term um the fact of the matter is they probably weren't going to get him for less than $6 million. And at least you know what you're getting with him, right? I, I didn't really have an issue. Um, I thought the Tyler Myers contract was um, very reminiscent of the Brent Seabrook contract in terms of the fact that it is not going to be good. You know what's really funny about the Edler one? I agree. Like, on a two-year deal, it's completely reasonable. Um, the discussion around a lot of that was, you know, the past couple of years, they wanted to trade him at the trading line. And he had negotiated a no-move clause into his deal. And so it was his right as a player to decide to not waive that because he didn't want to leave Vancouver. And so this summer, which is perfectly fine, completely reasonable, it's his right 
It's in his contract. He took less money on his previous deal so that he could have that choice. But then this summer, a lot of the discussion was like, I don't know. We're going to see what happens because we're unwilling to give Edler the term and the no move clause because then we're going to have to protect him in the expansion draft. And we're not sure we're going to be willing to do that at that point of his career. And so he wants this security that he's going to stay in Vancouver and we're not willing to give it to him. And then it's like, well, you kind of as the team being in Vancouver where Alex Edler clearly wants to stay. And I know that because I see him walking his dog all this all the time around here on the seawall. He loves Vancouver. Like you have the leverage. You don't need, you're negotiating against yourself. He clearly does not want to go sign with another team. So the fact that you get him to sign this team friendly deal, people are like, Oh, this is just bang up negotiating. Look at the Canucks, like pulling, executing this. It's like, no, yeah. He, he literally was not going to go anywhere else. He wants to end his career here and live in Vancouver. Like, great. This isn't rocket science. Yeah, awesome. Like, what's interesting to me is they have Louis Erickson on $6 million, right? Brock Besser's an RFA. Um, I would say he probably gets bridged. Um, and then he'll have some good years and he'll get paid. Uh, Elias has two more years and then he's getting double digits and you can sign, seal, and deliver that one. They're going to be in deep trouble when this all happens because Erickson will still be on the books if he hasn't been moved. JT Miller will be on the books. Tyler Myers will be on the books. Uh, Roussel and Beagle will be on the books. Like that's a big problem in 2021. You know, right. What's, what's really funny was um, like the previous GM, Mike Gillis, a, 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 one of the main complaints Canucks fans have had about his tenure and sort of the position he left the team in was, while those Canucks teams were competing, they were getting players to take less than their market value by giving them these sort of restricting no move and no trade clauses, right? And similar to what we were just talking about with Edler. And so that's kind of the price of doing business sometimes when you're a contender and you're trying to right. make it all work under the cap. With this Canucks team, they're obviously not all full no move clauses, so it doesn't completely tie your hands. But at this point, Jim Benning has given out at least no, at least mo- some sort of modification of a no trade clause to Louis Erickson. Brandon Sutter, Michael Furland, Antoine Roussel, Jay Beagle, and Tyler Myers. Wait a minute. Roussel and Beagle have no trade clauses? Yeah, I believe it's like uh, either 10 or 15 teams or something. Like it's some sort of a modified oh. one. Yeah. Oh. oh, I didn't know that. Or I forgot about. Wow. Well, I mean, when you're oh, when you're a free agent of Jay Beagle's caliber, I mean, you sort of have all the leverage, and I mean, paying him three million dollars in change per season is not enough. I mean, you also have to throw oh in God. that type of leverage. I mean, it's just unfortunately. I mean, but you're Jim Benning. What what, what else could you do? Uh, probably walk away. I don't know. Uh, wow. Um, that was that makes those contracts even worse than I originally thought. Well, okay. Okay. So. How wild is this? And this is like this is an objectively like a factual statement. I'm not making any of this up. This is it's you can't even really quibble with like this is just like a pure fact. So the Canucks, in their current state, you've been following the NHL. You're aware of their position and the fact they haven't made the playoffs in four years. They basically at this point have to move out contracts to have enough money to sign Brock Besser, who is what like their third or fourth best player. Okay, that's interesting that they've they're in this position. I guess 
they are basically capped out. Like, let's say they move a couple of those contracts, whatever, figure it out. Then they sign Brock Besser, even at a bridge. It, he scores a lot of goals. He'll make a decent chunk of change. They're going to be capped out. They're going to be down a future first over the next two years. And what is a realistic projection for this team as currently constituted, assuming there aren't some sort of catastrophic injuries for other teams or like every single one of their players gets 30% better next season? Like they're going to be fighting for fifth in the worst division in hockey with the Oilers, maybe get up to fourth, battle the Coyotes for a fourth in the Pacific. Like what? Because. I don't think. I mean, is first it reasonable of all, there to is, suggest that they're going to be ahead of Calgary, Vegas, or San Jose? That seems completely implausible to me. Yes, uh, it is completely unacceptable that a team with the best player on earth is in the current state that the Oilers are in. Uh, there should be no excuse. They should be challenging for the Pacific Division every single year, and that's that. Um, we'll get into the Oilers. Canucks, we'll. Yeah. I, I have them tabbed for later. Yeah. Um, with the Canucks, I mean, realistically, like, it would be reasonable to expect Elias to continue to develop. I think that kid's going to be an absolute superstar in this league. Um, shocking, the Canucks have a superstar Swede. Hmm. I think Quinn Hughes is their number one D of the future. I really, really am high on this kid. Um, maybe a little bit higher than most. Um, I love all the tools that he has. I love the way he carries the puck and his confidence to make plays, whether they're in the offensive zone or in the danger zones, in his own D zone. Like, I really like how he plays, and, and so obviously reasonable for him to have maybe not the best year this year because it'll be his first full year in the NHL. Um, but you would expect him to take steps forward. But, man, like they've got to get rid of some of these contracts because – Otherwise, I mean, you're just not going to be able to keep some of these young players. And could you imagine trying to explain to your fan base why you're going to lose one of your young players, maybe even like a Cole Lind or uh, a Jonah Gadjevich, let's say, because you have to trade a bad contract that you could have avoided signing? Yeah. Like, it's just, it's yeah. insane to me. It's crazy. You don't have to give up. I, I don't know how many times this needs to be said, but like, stop giving non-star players term. Stop. Just don't do it. Yeah, it's insane. It's like it's literally just don't do it. The argument you hear all the time. It's like, well, it's a it's a unrestricted free agent market. That's just how it would it cost. It's like, okay, you don't have to sign these players. Just let someone else do it. Then no, it's fine. Yeah. Oh, it's cool. It's all right. Someone else can have JB Eagle. That's great. It's someone else can have Antoine Roussel. Someone else could have had Louis Erickson. Like, I'm of the mindset, and I might be a little extreme with this, but, like, unless you are in the top five players on your team, there should be relatively no term on your contract. You know what I'm saying? So, like, when you look at Vancouver, right, let's say a couple years down the road, unless your name's Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, Quinn Hughes, uh, Bo Horvat. I'll probably leave it there. Um, your contract should not be longer than three years. I mean, yeah, especially if you're a bad team. Like, if you're, like, the <laughs> ninth best player on a horrible team that easily missed the playoffs, that's, like, if you're if you're the ninth best player on the Tampa Bay Lightning, you're, like, Alex Kaloran. Like, you're a good player. Still wouldn't give you're you a massive turn, but at least, like, player. you're a solid player. This is just, it's outrageous to me, and it's, like, 
Canucks fans have kind of worked this into their head that it's like, oh, well, you know, we drafted all these guys. Now we're, we're realizing some of this potential. Now we added a bunch of NHL players. We, might, we got Michael Furlan, we got Tyler Myers. We've shored up our defense. We're, we're set. We're moving in the right direction. And it's like, oh, man, this is unfortunately just, it's not how the league works. And then it's like, you hear a lot of, oh, well, you know, we can just move out some of these contracts. You can trade a Sven Berchi. You can trade some of these other guys. You can attach a prospect or a pick to Brandon Sutter and move his contract. But the issue is that this is also a regime that's done a really bad job of just accumulating future assets and extra picks over the years. So if you're all, you're all kind of already working um, as a kind of an uphill battle just because you don't have that high volume of assets like the Rangers, for example, have had the past couple of years. And so you can't really afford to be attaching few more future assets to get rid of some of these contracts that you easily could have avoided just by not signing them in the first place and that's kind of what it ultimately boils down to and so it's i mean the connection be better but what do you just like what are you trying to accomplish is i guess the ultimate question i have for people it's like are you trying because i people get sick of rebuilding especially if your team's been bad for a long time but it's like okay if you make the playoffs and you lose in five games in round one what did that ultimately accomplish are you trying to make the playoffs or are you trying to one day win a stanley cup and i think there's a massive difference for teams and the sooner you answer that question the better off you're going to be exactly and i think that vancouver is one of those where they've signed these contracts and it wasn't like oh, like, this is a good contract, and then something happened with the player and it turned out to be a really bad contract. I can say with certainty that uh, on July 1st, when Tyler Meyer signed, everyone went, whoa, that's a bad contract today, right now. When Antoine Roussel and Jay Beagle signed, everyone went, oh, my God, those are terrible contracts today, right now. Which means, what are they going to be down the road, like when you said, when you're trying to contend for a cup? Because, I'm sorry, but... Jay Beagle won in Washington. He wasn't making $3 million playing on their fourth line. Like, he's a fourth-line guy on a cup team when they won. In no world should you be paying your fourth-line guy $3 million. Like, none. Zero. Your fourth-line guy should be either coming up for the minors or they're, like, your veterans that are getting paid, the veteran minimum, that kind of thing. It's just... It's insane to me when you talk about building a cup team. You want to make the playoffs and have playoff revenue and whatever. Like, okay, I get it. But if the ultimate goal is to win a cup, you just can't be signing these contracts. Like, you can't do it. Well, especially with, like, we're both equally high on Elias Pettersson, obviously, and also Quinn Hughes. And so they have two years left on their entry-level deals when they're making peanuts compared to how productive they're going to be. And so this is sort of your time to flex that financial might by getting creative and adding more talent and trying to sort of figure out the next steps acknowledging that hopefully these guys are going to continue to produce and develop in two years from now you're going to face the good problem of having to pay them a ton of money and in Elias Patterson's case maybe even approaching or above 10 million if he keeps producing the way he was last year and so in that case all of a sudden you're going to be more up against it financially which is a good problem because that means you have a great player but then you can't afford to make these types of mistakes. Otherwise you're going to basically be the Edmonton Oilers. Like my question for, for the Canucks and their fans is you talk about how this foundation that Jim Benning's built out, right? It's like, yeah, you have your kind of cornerstone linchpin star and Elias Pettersson, who's going to make everyone better. You have a guy who scores a bunch of goals in Brock Besser and you have uh, like a, a very reliable, awesome two way center and Bo Horvat who does a lot of the little things. It's like that, 
that's basically like Edmonton's model right now, right? Like you have McDavid, Dreisaitl, <laughs> Ryan Nugent Hopkins, and if you mismanage everything else and you don't fully take advantage of the rest of your resources and instead you have a bunch of bad contracts, that's only going to take you so far. That's a team that's missed the playoffs two straight years with the best player in the world, as you mentioned. And so obviously um, there's still time before the Canucks have to sort of answer some of those questions and really figure it out with those guys two years from now. But man, it's it's tough that this is the route they've taken and sort of a band-aid fix to try to expedite this rebuild process as much as possible just to get a couple games of playoff revenue and and sort of for the management team to be able to go into the ownership's office and be like well look we are on the right track it's it's just it's so short-sighted and we see this time and time again and fans just often get fooled by it because they're just sort of hopeful that it's going to be a best case scenario for all these players. And once the team gets in, look, we saw the St. Louis Blues. All you have to do is get in and you could win the cup. It could be you. It's like, ugh. yeah, that's like literally the first time that's ever happened in what? A hundred and three years of NHL history. I'm not exactly banking on the point nine percent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, like it's just, it just drives me nuts. The Blues, <laughs> the Blues cited as, oh, they were in last place in the NHL. OK, they were also the best team in the NHL from that point on by like any underlying metric <laughs> yeah exactly this isn't exactly like a crappy team making the playoffs and just getting a bunch of bounces going their way like they did a couple things oh well like you know they were yeah i don't know it wasn't as big of a fluke as people seem to be making it out to be at this point no they were actually like a they didn't luck their way there like that they were legitimately a force for half of the season they were right? that's not insignificant they were the other thing you you get a lot of on Twitter and, and just from people in general is like if you're negative I don't know if you've experienced this but if you if you're negative about a signing or a move there's a lot of like well before we jump to conclusions why don't we just let this play out and see how it goes and then after the fact when it inevitably doesn't wind up working out it's like oh well yeah obviously in hindsight it didn't work out it's like no we were talking about this at the start it's like what you mentioned with the Tyler Myers contract it's like two years from now when it's an albatross and people are like oh my god I can't believe the Canucks have this on their books people are going to be like oh well sure now it's not looking good it's like no like literally at the time everyone that was paying attention was talking about how this was a very bad decision yeah it's literally like we said day one, we said before the contract was signed, this is going to be a bad contract. And it was signed anyways. Like, it's just, it's incredible. My favorite word. My favorite. They, you have the option now because of this, like, tamp. I'll call it the tampering period. Um, this tampering period where you could leak contracts and take the temperature of what people think. And the Tyler Myers stuff got out. Right. And yep. everyone to a man was like, oh, my God, this is awful. This is an awful idea. And yet here we are. Right. So what's that contract going to look like in four years? Well, the best is <laughs> uh, my, my working theory is that because uh, remember, we, we, we heard all those reports that it was going to be like seven million for seven or eight years or something. And it was like a it was a punchline, and then he comes in at six by six or something like that, and then it's like, oh well, it was actually you know it could have been worse. And I, my my favorite working theory is that like the, those fake numbers nope, were leaked bad. just to make it look better <laughs> by comparison, though. Like I, I I'd love that to uh, to be <laughs> yeah, the case. Yeah, that's it's it's rough, and you know there's also like with the Canucks, like a lot of there was optimism towards the end of last year because it's like oh you know Jacob Markstrom has figured it out, and it's like what are we. 
what are we banking on here? Um, a 29-year-old who had a 920 save percentage over 23 games or like the 200 games and nearly decades worth of sample that came before that to suggest that he was like a 9-10 goalie. Like sometimes a, a hot stretch from a goalie can be the worst thing to end a season for a rebuilding team because it sort of like builds this false hope that your team's actually a lot closer than it is. And if that goalie comes back crashing down to earth, similar to what happened with the Oilers, actually with Cam Talbot that one year, he was remarkable and he played like 70 plus games. And as soon as you stop having that, it exposes a lot of your other flaws. And then you're like, Oh crap, maybe we weren't as good as we thought we were all along. Well, like I had more than one person tell me that uh, Jordan Bennington was a better option than Carey Price. And I was like, you are out of your mind. Like, Oh my God, you're taking a half season for a goaltender for me. Like in, in talking to everyone in terms of evaluating goalies, I need to see two consistent seasons for me to even like remotely consider the fact that this is what you could be. And we're taking a sample size of a half season and a stand, like a, a run to the cup to say he's better than Carey Price and deserves, Oh, St. Louis should lock him up like eight years, and seven and a half or $8 million. I'm like, you're out of your mind. Like, and this is the thing with goalies where you talk about Jacob Markstrom. Okay, he has a great season where he's like 9-20, plays 23-odd games. I'm still, if you're smart, you still take that sample size of the two, 200, 210 games where he was the 9-10, right? That's still what I'm going to bank on. Maybe you bank on him being 9-13 or 9-14. So maybe you bank on him falling somewhere in the middle, right? But if you think you're going to bank on a goaltender who wants in... 10 years is a 920 like that's not a very good way to go about building a team i mean certainly not how i would do it yeah all of it all of it is upsetting it's it's i get when fans just like want to be excited and you just kind of want to be sort of not clueless but just like bury your head in the sand and just hope everything works out but from like an ownership and a, a management perspective it just really does sometimes feel like it's like the ultimate con job where it's like you're sort of taking advantage of that desperation and just that need for some bit of hope and you do just enough to like suck people in and and convince them that it's going to be different next (laughs) season but when you sort of look under the hood of that car it's like oh it's kind of the same crap we were dealing with before and none of the issues have been fixed and this is a great segue to talk about the Edmonton Oilers because (laughs) I mean there's something the fact that to be fair Ken Holland deserves at least more than a month and a half of leeway. <laughs> no, certainly. And, and, and financially, you know, Peter Shirelli left them with so um, little in the way of flexibility that even like realistically heading into the summer, I, I think if people were expecting some sort of uh, fireworks from the Oilers to suddenly dramatically improve their team, like there weren't very many avenues for them to do so. But I still will say all of that acknowledged. The fact that basically they're summer moves so far as of july 16th have amounted to bringing in marcus grandland who like literally couldn't play on the aforementioned canucks and mike smith as their backup in net and other otherwise just rolling it back with the team they had last year that was just so uh shockingly underwhelming and disappointing beyond their two best players or i guess three if you include nugent hopkins that's just like it's such a tough pill to swallow for not even or just Oilers fans, but for just fans of hockey in general, that we're going to have to do this dance all over again where it's like, oh, Connor McDavid is so amazing. Look at all these crazy things he's doing. And then they're still losing 5-2 because everything else around him sucks. 
Well, I think it's a it's a crime that we don't get to watch him in the playoffs. Um, I think if he could go back and do that contract again, he probably doesn't sign for eight years. Um, you probably do what some of the other players are doing in terms of taking that shorter deal so you can cash in twice as opposed to just once. Um, and in McDavid's situation, uh, I, I take the shorter deal because I can walk if it's still a disaster in five or six years' time kind of thing, right? And the fact that they had a player of McDavid's ilk and then Leon Dreisaitl, who scored 50 goals, there is, how bad is the rest of your team where you have arguably two superstar, like top 10 players in the league, and you are picking eighth overall because you are that abysmal? Like, are that's you, offensive. You, I know you got a new job that we're going to talk about recently, but are you also Leon Dreisaitl's agent? Uh, Top I'm 10 not. player in the world. Yeah, I think he, when he plays to could, his potential, I think he's top 10. Could I see him carry his own line and be an above average player for more than 10 games at a time? Is that too much to ask for my uh, for a top 10 player in the world? No, that's not too much. Okay, maybe maybe top twenty. He's a really maybe good player. 20. I mean, he scored fifty goals and he had hundred points last year. Like, there's not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to uh, poo poo on. on okay, well, this as he's a, he's a very good player. Yes, he He's was, a very yes. very good player. Yeah. McDavid's number one, and that yes, I don't like. That's I'm the point so, here. Yeah. yeah. Um, the fact that you have someone who is in the discussion for a top echelon player, maybe not top ten. That was a bit generous. Um, it's probably the German in me. <laughs> um, but. You have a the number one player in the world and another fifty goal scorer, and that is the type of behavior the rest of your team exhibits. It's not acceptable. Not acceptable. You have to do something about it. And Lucic, like that contract was another one of those contracts that we just talked about, where it was like day one we were like, mm, that's not great. Which hilariously, Jim Benning really wanted to sign him to. <laughs> there were so many people in Vancouver that were literally going to tear their eyes out if if that would have happened. And it would have been a total disaster. Could you imagine if they had Lucic, Erickson, uh, Beagle, and Russell? Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. Lucic, <laughs> I mean, the contract's uh unmitigated disaster. I mean, he's got the no move. He at least, I guess, the one positive is you can convince him to waive it. Um He's only actually owed $13 million in real cash over the next four years after the signing bonus was paid out this summer. So, you know, Ottawa, we, exactly. I mean, like a shell, a shell <laughs> company like Ottawa, we see just doesn't care about actual uh, cap hit. They just want to know how much they're going to be willing to having to pay them uh, would be an appealing option. But that's what I give Holland. Uh, while I say like, it's fair to be patient and wait to see a bit more before we get overly critical about how inactive they've been this summer. The fact that, you know, there still seems to be no real resolution to this Jesse Pulley RB situation, which I can't imagine getting better or more palatable for the Oilers as time goes on. The fact that we haven't really heard anything about them exploring avenues to dump that Lucic contract and clear up that cap space. Like a lot of that stuff is, I'd like to at least like get the feeling that something was happening there. And, and when we talk about them, Obviously, I think the biggest need is just like having more functional wingers so that you can afford to bump a dry saddle down and have three top centers actually play their natural positions as opposed to playing one of your highest paid players alongside Connor McDavid unnecessarily. But the issue is like 
there's so many interesting cheap wingers that are out there. It's the easiest position to acquire talent, and they really haven't done anything in that regard this summer. And I think that is sort of um, the disappointing thing for me. And and the market is drying up where there are fewer options now. And you know the fact that obviously the player needs to be willing to sign there, but that they weren't in on the, the Zingles or the Marcus Johansons or some of these guys that went for less than we would have thought they would. Like that's a disappointing part to me because they could, could have very easily improved their team there with one smart move and instead they haven't really had anything to show for it yet well yeah and i think that when you look at don't get me wrong like i like philip broberg but let's face it like cole caulfield sitting there dylan cousins was sitting there was he not he was yeah because uh yeah. Broberg went eight and then cousins went nine and then put goals and went ten exactly like any one of those players to be quite honest, um, would have helped McDavid. Because let's say you draft Cousins in a fantasy world, right? Well, you make Cousins your number two center at some point, and then you can play Dreisaitl with McDavid. I mean, I would prefer that Dreisaitl drive his own line. I think he's capable of doing it. Um, But the fact that you went into this summer and did absolutely nothing to add or subtract some of the nonsense that's currently on the roster and to add some other stuff like it it's it's inexcusable i mean ken holland came in in a really really tough spot um but like you said we haven't really heard anything about them moving lucic and the puyi rv stuff i personally i think that puyi rv should give holland a chance because holland clearly um if there's one thing he did in detroit relatively successfully up until the last like couple years it was develop right mm. they they develop some some pretty good like they have a pretty good development yeah, system so, heard of, yeah. exactly and so i think that if he brings that same mentality to edmonton a player like puyi who's kind of in this vicious cycle of he gets hurt and his skating gets worse and he gets hurt and his skating gets worse and he gets hurt because his skating gets worse and it's just round and round and round we go I think with a, a proper development system, he could really benefit from that. So I think Puyi probably should give the Oilers another chance. I don't know how much there is to Marcus Leto's claim that he is going to play in Europe next year. Um, I'm kind of super interested to see how that plays out. But even then, like you can move a Lucic contract. Ottawa's got to hit the floor. Um, there's one other team actually that has to hit the floor. I cannot remember it off the top of my head. Um, so you can move that salary. And if you have to move one of your draft assets to do that, then so be it. But at the end of the day, you are wasting McDavid's prime, and that's not acceptable. So you have to do whatever you can to capitalize on his prime because you're only going to get him once. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks to be wasting those years. It's as good as he's been. I just wanted to be clear with the listeners. The uh, the sirens in the background are on your end for once. It's not on my uh, Yeah, I actually moved downtown Toronto, and mm. there are sirens in everywhere now, and there's it's there's so much going on. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Well, listeners of the PDO cast are very familiar with that. So. Sirens, feel dogs, construction. Yeah. Um, okay, Let's. we've been a bit overly negative. Let's talk about... Um, a summer that I have liked so far with the uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes. It's kind of a bit sneaky because there haven't necessarily been man- many like sort of big splashes from them. But you know they bring back Petr Mrazek on a much more reasonable deal than I thought he was going to get from someone. 
they get rid of that Scott Darling contract and bring in Reimer, who I think is much more salvageable and could very reasonably be an above average backup for them behind Razik. Um, they get Ryan to Zimmel. Or even a 50-50 split. Yeah, which basically what they did last year. I think, you know, going from McElhaney Mrazic to, to Mrazic, Reimer, perfectly reasonable. Um, yeah. They get the Zingle two-year deal at a very minimal cap hit. Um, they trade for Eric Halla, Take advantage yeah, of... Yeah, that was a big one. Take advantage of Vegas's cap bind. And, and you know, they're going to reasonably expect to bump up Andre Svechnikov and give him more of a workload and maybe even get him up on that top line. We'll see what happens with Justin Williams and whether he comes back. But all of a sudden, for this Canes team, they brought in a bunch of guys, especially up front now, who um, have give them more of a scoring punch, can play with, this, with the sort of trademark speed that the Hurricanes played with last year. And I think there's a lot of reason to be excited that... I don't know if they're going to make it to the conference finals again, but that it's not going to be sort of a one and done. We're going to take two steps back next year. Like, I think this is a lot of positive momentum and a lot of stuff going in the right direction to expect that they can only build off of last year. Yeah, like I don't think it's reasonable to say that they're going to go to the conference finals again this year, but I, it's absolutely reasonable to say that they're going to make the playoffs and that they're going to be a good team. Um, Sebastian Ajo's cap hit is very reasonable. Um, I think he's worth north of 10. So the fact that they have him for a little less than 8.5 is uh, it's pretty nice. Um, and you've got Tara Vine in it, very reasonable. Nino Niederreiter, like, he was great for them last year. Last year you talked about the single. Um, I think Martin Nichash probably gets a look at the lineup this year, um, and that's another kind of skill injection. Warren Fogle is everything you could ask for uh, out of, I think he was like a fifth-round pick or something like that. Um They've got some really, really neat sort of pieces, and um, they did trade Dahan. But at the end of the day, when you have defensemen with the names Dougie Hamilton, Jacob Slavin, Brett Pesci, Justin Falk, Hayden Fleury, like you have that luxury, you can do it. Yeah, because those top three defensemen, probably number one defenseman on most other teams. Like if I were to pluck up any one of the three. Hamilton, Slavin, or Pesci, they're number one defenseman on a lot of teams. Like, they're number one defenseman if you just do the Canadian teams. Number one defenseman in Vancouver, any one of them, yep. Definitely in Edmonton. Uh, maybe not in Calgary. Um, potentially even in Winnipeg because Buffalo's kind of slowed down a little bit. Yeah. Um, they're definitely number two in Toronto. Um, they're number one in Ottawa, um, and they're—I mean, hard to say with Weber because he's injured. Um, but you could make the argument definitely that, more reliable. Yeah, so they'd be number one in Montreal, and that's just the Canadian team, right? Like the, they have three excellent, excellent defensemen. Then you have Folk, who, if, when you're playing in number four spot, like. That's he's solid number four defenseman. Yeah, they need to sell high on Falk like yesterday. I that's yeah. that's one thing that I would really love for them to see, and that could, you know, it's kind of similar. I guess it's different because they're not like fully all in relying on Martin Jazz to step in and be that second center for them. Like what we we're talking about with Middlestad and Buffalo, where it's like if you don't have a fallback plan, you're going to be screwed because sometimes young players take longer to develop. So if he doesn't, like they still have Jordan Stahl there, but from like a best case scenario, what's going to get this team to the next level, getting that in there, giving that talent infusion, and then sort of bumping 
all the other guys down a peg to a more reasonable spot for their skill sets with Jordan Stahl going into that like prototypical shutdown third line center role and then a guy like Lucas Walmart or whatever being their fourth line center instead of each guy kind of playing a bit higher than he probably should be like that's when everything really falls into place for them and you know I think they're 20 to 1 to win the Eastern Conference right now in the most recent odds which was behind teams that made big splash moves like the Panthers and the Rangers and the Flyers and even the Devils and i yeah, we'll see. Obviously, um, the fact that they had a good summer doesn't necessarily going to mean they're going to repeat their success, as we said. But um, they've certainly given themselves at least an opportunity here to do so. And I really like the summer they've had. And, and especially if they bring in Justin Williams as well, you can never have enough enough wing depth. And it's uh, it's going to be a good team again. And, and I think most importantly for us, they're going to be really fun to watch again because a lot of these guys can skate. And I hope that they continue the storm surge because it was awesome and it kind of bucked the trend. And I'm all here for that. Like, make hockey fun. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's been so boring in terms of fan experience for so long. And it's like the first fun thing that happens. Everyone's up and yelling and screaming about it. Like, relax. So relax. On, so I, I hope they win like I hope they win 41 home games next year like yeah. I literally hope they win every home game because yeah. I want to see it I agree I don't <laughs> just think, do it I don't think they're going to do it though no they won't win 41 home games but if no. they won 30 like <laughs> no I mean do? I don't think they're going to I don't think they're going to do it again I, I, I hope they come up with something new and creative um, I believe but why that. not make it their thing make the storm surge their thing in the same way that I'm trying to think of like how another team in another sport has something that they do no matter what and it's their thing you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, listen, I'm all for it. Make I mean, it the NHL needs more like, of it, for sure. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be super random. Where I'm going to pivot to uh, Vegas a little bit because just in terms of like, um, I was looking at the list of free agents that are still available. And obviously, the, I don't want to get into uh, all the RFAs that are still available because you can just turn on any, any radio program or whatever and, and hear people yelling about Mitch Marner. I'm, I'm really not interested in that at all. I'm so, I don't even want to hear yeah. his name until he's signed. Like, do not. He's not signed until September, October. Stop talking about it. Stop giving Paul Marner the time of day. And, and here's, here's the thing. We also, as we just saw with the Sharks, like, t- I, I get that we saw the Aho offer sheet. That was like the fakest, phoniest attempt at trying to actually steal a star player from another team. It was never going to happen. I'm not even going to count that as an offer sheet. And like, the Sharks were the one team that was incredibly plausible that even if you didn't do a double offer sheet, you could have just swooped in and stolen Kevin LeBanc. You could have potentially made, made them at least think for Timo Meyer. Instead, they've got both guys. Meyer on a really reasonable deal, the bank on an absolute uh, laughable one, one year, one million dollar deal. That was a joke. Like I'm, so, he needs a fire his agent. Unless there's a deal in the top drawer for January first, like I'm sorry, but like I'm, what is going on there? There absolutely is. I mean, it's it's uh, it's very transparent. But you know, from his from like from his angle, I mean, obviously he could have gotten more. Um, but I think he's probably also just betting on that. Like, you know, he had 17 goals and 56 points last year and certainly could have cashed in for more than he got. But if he looks at the landscape now, he's like, hmm, okay, Pavelski and Donskoy are both gone. There's, a, there's there's some room on the wing with San Jose. You're either going to be playing with Couture, Hurdle, Meyer, 
Kane. Like you're going to be on one of those top lines, and you're probably going to be playing on the top power play. And I, I bet Kevin LeBanc's going to get an, another. Hopefully, uh, knock on wood, stays healthy and has another monster season, and he'll probably get paid pretty handsomely, and probably by the Sharks after uh, after they're able to do so. But anyways, though the whole point of this, I was looking at like ways for teams to improve and players that are available. And Jake Gardner is obviously a name that's still out there on the open market. But another name that has been floated around a lot is Nikita Gusev, as he's obviously an RFA, but he seems like he's available. And we'll see what happens with Vegas there. But I was looking at Vegas's daily faceoff page, and um, these are their these are their fir- like first three lines that daily faceoff currently has in some order for them. So they have Marcia So, William Carlson, and Mark Stone as their top line. Line okay. line two, Max Pacioretty. Paul Stasny, Alex Tuck. Third line, Riley Smith, Nikita Gusev, Cody Glass. And now all I want in this world is for them to actually just re-sign Nikita Gusev and have that top nine because that is absolutely insane. And that's probably the best nine-man combination. Definitely in the West. I think even if you compare it to Tampa, like Tampa has the higher-end talent, obviously. But just in terms of like one through nine, projecting Cody Glass to obviously step into the league and produce at some high level, like, man, that is a frightening combination of forwards. Yeah, I mean, I still think that one of those forwards has to go um, in order to be cap-compliant. But I have Cody Glass... Cody Glass steps in next year. That I have zero doubt at all in my mind. And I'm talking steps in makes an impact. Like he's not going to be step in and get ten points, kind of thing. But like he's going to step in and actually do some some stuff. And that is a a frightening top nine. Um, well, here's my question I think for Mark you, Rachel. Stone probably should have won the Selkie. So here's here's my uh, here's my question for you. This is a thought exercise. So Vegas has six point six million combined in Cody Eakin and Ryan Reeves. Um, If you're another team, obviously you need to have cap space yourself, but let's just think like realistically here in a vacuum, there's NHL teams out there that probably view each of those guys as like an actual asset, right? Oh, for sure. Like I think there's a couple like there's a couple guys that I think that apart from obviously uh, they're not going to trade Mark Stone they're probably not going to trade Pacioretty probably not trading Carlson Marshall Smith um, or or Cody Glasses or yeah okay well he's untouchable um, I would say you could a huge value in Alex Tuck there's value in Cody Eakin he's a pending UFA and he can penalty kill very effectively so team is kind of looking for that uh, wow. can be your third where, line center where was he in, at game seven in uh, the western conference final oh that's right he was in the penalty box oh he was in the dressing room uh oh yeah he was he wasn't prob- even in the box yeah he, was, <laughs> he probably shouldn't have been in the dressing room yeah um and you could tell that their penalty kill went up in flames well quite literally um but you know anyways here's okay here's here my, my point was it's not even the type of situation where it's like, oh, we have to attach some sort of a premium asset like the Leafs did for no, someone to take on this contract. No, they're in these players. You're totally right. So they probably yeah. can. They, they, I don't think they have to get rid of one of these top forwards. Like I think they could probably very easily without even attaching, especially since Eakin and Reeves are both uh, only have one year left on their deal. I'm pretty sure there's teams out there that would just take them straight up for nothing. The, the Vegas might even be able to get some sort of like random late picks back in return. And then just sign Gusev to what he's looking for, which is apparently a very reasonable like two-year deal at four million per or something like that, just so he proves that he can play in the NHL. Like, just that seems like such a better alternative to me than 
keeping Eakin and, and Reeves and then trading Gusev for like a second on and a dollar. fifth, like for some reason, like just why not just have that insane top nine and figure it out after and just go for it this season since, you know, they lost in round one last year, but it took an absolute travesty of a call to a team that was very, very good. And I think Vegas has every right to believe that they should once again be a legitimate contender heading into the season. So I just kind of want to see them go for that and go with a high upside approach as to kind of playing it safe and just selling goose for cents on the dollar, as you mentioned. Yeah, I think you definitely, you could move Eakin for an asset. I think there are some teams that you could move Reeves to. There are other teams that just don't have interest in that type of player. And I mean, they're probably very obvious, but Eakin, I think definitely has some value. You could definitely move that contract. Um, I would keep Gusev. I mean, he's from what I've seen overseas, insane talent, like insane talent. Does that translate over here? We don't know. So that's very sort of that's up in the air, but it, it's a smart bet on a two year deal. Like I probably wouldn't, you know what you have with Eakin and Reeves, right? And you know that they're not going to be top nine forwards that produce the fact that Gusev has the potential to me your decision is made you have to try and keep him right you shouldn't be trying to sell that kind of player so the fact that I haven't heard names like Eakin and Reeves um Thomas Nosek sort of brought up I mean I feel like I should be hearing those names because I feel like those are the names that sort of have to move to make it work um that's kind of my thoughts because if you can move that six million dollars out that goes a long way to sort of helping your cap scenario um all right rachel let's get out of here plug some uh plug some stuff plug your podcast and do you want to talk a little bit about uh what you're going to be doing with your job um yeah so i got the uh the staff and graph podcast it's me and ian tulloch ironically we live in the same city yet we've never actually recorded a podcast together in the same room so that's fun but that runs sort of weekly um we might take a bit of a break in the summer i've got some vacation um that i'm going on because uh it's for anyone that kind of knows me it's been an interesting two years for me so i'm taking some time off and then uh i'm kind of already jumped full swing into my new job um with york university but i'm also going to school there too so i'm gonna have that to balance um, basically trying to build a sports science slash analytics department so that I can do sort of my own research. It can be a research ground for other students, but also for people to gain experience. Um, and then hopefully it works and uh, the school wants to roll it out across other sports like soccer and football and basketball because that would be kind of cool. It'd be a, a model type thing. And mm. so I'm pretty excited that uh, that's happening. I mean, the fact that I, the deans are fully on board tells me that I'm probably picked a pretty good place and for me it's uh, it's close to home and that matters right now um, mm. to me uh, it definitely it does um, there's a lot sort of to be said about being able to be at home and what's interesting is people made a lot of like Tavares going home or people made a lot of Kawhi Leonard going home or just athletes in general wanting to play where they're from. Um, having been someone who lived somewhere else, um, it is different when you get to live at home. I'm not saying that I don't want to work in other cities, but 
the, just the chance to be able to work close to home, like it's it matters. That was the best. That was the best guest side off on the PDO cast. You just suddenly compare yourself to Kawhi Leonard and John Tavares. No, no, no. Like, I was specifically talking like, about wanting to like, work at home. Yeah, just like you know, just like my car, just like you know, fellow stars. Like no, uh, but what, you know what I'm saying? Where like people make such a big deal about like oh, playing at home. This doesn't really mean anything. Well, obviously, I'm not on that scale, but like working at home, yeah, it means something to me, right? I mean, obviously, for me, like, for me, I got two places where I could call home. Like, I've got Toronto, and then I've got Germany. So, if yes. I'm in either one of those places, that's home. And so, I don't blame players for wanting to play at home. That's what I'm saying. Before, I didn't really see it, but now I'm kind of like, no, I, I get it, I get it, because home is home. Yeah, no, definitely, uh, and obviously it, it depends on where you're at in your life and what you prioritize. Um, yeah. Uh, all right, Rachel. Well, uh, this was a blast. I'm glad we got to do this. Enjoy the uh, the rest of your summer, and we'll check in with you sometime down the road. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. The Hockey Pedio Cast with Dmitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockeypediocast.